On today's episode of the Nomcast, I'll give you my take on the latest Netflix action film, Kate, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, before it drops on Netflix this Friday. I'll also do a little awards film update as we digest the instant reactions coming from the Venice Film Festival and Telluride. Plus, I'm going to weigh in on the comments from director Patty Jenkins about original streaming movies. All this and plenty more, so let's get to it! Hello and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check us out on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right, thanks so much for joining us. If you are from the U.S., I hope you had a wonderful Labor Day weekend. I spent my weekend hanging out with my family, of course, but I also spent a bunch of that time hanging out with podcasters and That may sound like it's a common occurrence, but it's not as much as you think. Uh, In fact, frequent guest of the show, Shane Beauregard of Media Mosh, came over to my house on Friday, and it was the first time we ever met in person. So that was really cool. It was nice to see him and his family. Got to see Chris Ferdell of Arguing With Myself at the same time. We took a lovely picture that is on our Instagram feed if you want to check that out. And the following night, I got together with the Forgotten Entertainment crew uh, as we were celebrating the completion of On the QT, the Quentin Tarantino podcast that the boys from Pina Comics did. If you haven't listened to that, I would absolutely recommend it. I'm on the Kill Bill Volume 2 episode, so if you are just obsessed with me, and who wouldn't be, uh, you can check that one out for sure. Uh, It was a great time doing that episode, and it was a great hang over the weekend with everybody So I hope you had a great weekend as well, as much as I did. But now it's back to Netflix original movie business, and boy, do we have a bunch to talk about. Later on, I'll review a movie that I've been looking forward to in the last couple months here. Kate, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, the new action flick that I'm sure will get a lot of eyeballs this upcoming weekend. But first, I wanted to empty the notebook and check in on all the news and hot-button topics that have cropped up since last week. And I want to start how I frequently start around this time of year with an award season update. The Venice Film Festival and the Telluride Film Festival are happening or just wrapping up as I am recording this. And there have been plenty of reactions to some of the most notable Netflix films of the year. Three major titles, in fact, uh, The Power of the Dog, The Hand of God, and The Lost Daughter, all having tons of reactions come out of those festivals. And I wanted to share just a few to kind of see how well they are doing with critics I respect, and maybe if they have moved in the pecking order up or down uh, on the current award season landscape. So let's start with Power of the Dog. A movie that uh, just had their trailer drop online. If you haven't checked that out, please do. Kind of a very more subtle uh, trailer. Something not over the top. Not very uh, heavy on the explanation. But definitely setting a mood and a tone that I think strikes very well. It's a movie that uh, a lot of people now that you're seeing the reactions come out are saying things like... uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in you know a, a performance that maybe we haven't seen him do before something a little more menacing a little more intimidating uh you know something that 
you wouldn't maybe expect, but is very effective. So uh, I definitely look forward to that. Check out that trailer. Uh, I was impressed by that. But now, like I said, we're sort of seeing some of the early reactions. And uh, I know that Telluride had a special medallion recognizing a hero of cinema uh, that went to Jane Campion, the director of The Power of the Dog. Um, And it was a part of a tribute that preceded the screening of The Power of the Dog, and it was presented to her by Benedict Cumberbatch. And so a lot of times when you see these tributes, uh, it kind of like speaks to what a lot of people think about this film, or at least where it kind of puts in the rankings of some of these films as they're they're coming into award season. I know that, um, like I said, a, a few critics that I like, like Sean Fennessy of The Big Picture, I probably mentioned him a bunch of times on this podcast, he calls it the anti-anti-Western, the best and least mannered Benedict Cumberbatch performance he's seen, a nifty masterclass in Hitchcockian wrong footing uh, from Jane Campion, and it is. It's wild that this is her first feature in 12 years. So Sean Venice seems to be pretty uh, impressed with that one coming out of there. I've also seen uh, Matt Neglia of Next Best Picture gave Power of the Dog a 9 out of 10. So that's a, a pretty strong report there, too. So um, I, at the worst, I, I've seen in terms of the reactions... Some people kind of maybe said, like, I think maybe Scott Feinberg said, uh, him of The Hollywood Reporter, uh, maybe said, I don't know who the audience is for his film, but, you know, that's could be extremely valid. Uh, but I don't think anyone's panned this at all. Maybe it was a film that wasn't for them, but they also had to, like, kind of acknowledge things like score and cinematography being very strong and a lot of the performances being very strong i know i've seen you know besides uh benedict cumberbatch i've definitely seen kirsten dunn's name uh thrown around in terms of maybe she could go uh into uh the nominating period uh with this film under her belt and you know that'd be interesting too you know you talk about jane campion uh having it be her first feature in 12 years you really haven't seen uh, Kirsten Dunst uh, really kind of have her name batter around in terms of, um, you know, even popular culture, let alone, you know, the, the award circuit. So I, I definitely look forward to this film just to even see some some actors and actresses that I haven't seen in some time. So that'll be interesting, but definitely a lot of positive reviews. I mean, this kind of movie came into uh, the, the fil- fall film festival season as uh, very highly ranked. So I don't think anything that came out of uh, the current film festivals dissuade that in, in any regard. Maybe certain things popped more during those festivals, so it might have increasing competition, but we will see in terms of the best picture talk where that lands as we get further and further towards the end of the year. Uh, another film that was there was The Hand of God, the Paolo Sorrentino Italian film that, you know, just uh, as a point of reference, uh, it's a very personal film. And not only that, but, it, uh, you know, Sorrentino is the only director, I believe, to, uh, you know, have an Italian submission go into Oscar Sunday, I believe, in a very long time. His uh, One of his previous films uh, made it. I think again over like a decade ago. So it's it's been a long time and you know the the reviews for that have been mixed um but I I did note 
Uh, the Hollywood Reporter's chief film critic, David Rooney, as saying that it is a richer, deeper, more searingly poignant film than anything the director has done before. That's definitely a, a positive uh, from him. Not everyone was as strongly in the camp. Some of them said it was, you know, more entertaining than maybe awards worthy. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely a film that um, speaks to Sorrentino's youth. Uh, you're gonna you kind of see that uh, coming through all the time. So definitely something that it didn't get panned across the board, but it definitely it seems like we're we're just kind of waiting and seeing that it's it's there are reviews going in a positive direction, but it's really in the hands of Italy right now because a lot of these things can get very political. You know, it kind of helps him that he's had past success come award season, so maybe this uh you know helps him but i know that there's been a few other italian films out in the film festivals in the last few months that have also gotten some praise too so it's kind of a wait and see we can you know think that it's very good and then if italy doesn't want to submit it for for oscar consideration for best international feature then this might get you know kind of pushed to the side a little bit like the life ahead did one of my favorite films from last year uh, where I thought it was excellent, but it was not the Italian submission. So it got, you know, nominations here and there, but it didn't show up on Oscar Sunday, really, besides, I believe, Best Original uh, Song was nominated for that film. But it could have gotten a lot more if it was actually in competition. So we'll have to wait and see on that. The other film that has gotten a lot of uh, reviews coming out of the festivals is uh, The Lost Daughter. Uh, which is Oscar-nominated actress Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. And it looks likely that Oscar nominations in the acting categories is more likely maybe than a best picture here. But definitely uh, Olivia Coleman, who seems to be you know an awards favorite, especially amongst the Academy. She plays Lita, a British professor vacationing alone in Greece. Also, you have Jesse Buckley. Um, who plays the same woman roughly 20 years earlier when she was raising her two daughters. And then Dakota Johnson's here, who plays a young mother who Coleman's Lita meets on a beach. And there's, you know, a lot of buzz that, you know, any of those three, and uh, most certainly Olivia Coleman, could be uh, in the Oscar conversation. Um, you know, whether it's one or two or three of those, um, you know, this dark drama seems to be, uh, striking a chord, you know, it's it's not the most likable character, I guess, in Coleman's case, but, you know, it's more, you know, maybe something that women have dealt with more often because it is something about struggling to hold on to their identity and sometimes their, even their sanity after having children. And it could be, um, you know, especially with a more diversified academy, it could really strike a chord uh, with a lot of the 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 voting bodies uh, increasingly becoming more female and and m maybe really taking on this film as something that you know is more relatable than we would think. So uh, look out for that because Scott Feinberg definitely seemed to uh, echo those sentiments. Him of like I said, the Hollywood Reporter. So that's something we should definitely keep an eye out for. And that movie, you know, it's got a great position. Uh, it's the last film of the year for Netflix, uh, I believe, right on New Year's Eve, if I'm not mistaken. So keep an eye out for that. A lot of these are coming up soon. I will actually be attending uh, the New York Film Festival 
cross your fingers that nothing goes wrong with that, uh, to see the power of the dog. So that will be uh, in early October. So I will report as soon as I think it's relevant. Um, I might do a little tease and then do a, a bigger breakdown later. But awesome, awesome that I actually get to have this experience. So come on, COVID, avoid everything. <laughs> you know, simmer down. There is no vis- uh, virtual component. I would like to actually see this. So uh, let's uh, let's do this. Let's get it under control and really kick off the fall festival season correctly. Next up, I wanted to talk about some major names in the history of horror films. Uh, has notes on films that might be coming up sooner than we think. And then one that will be coming out probably around this time next year. We'll start off with that one. A new Stephen King film. Mr. Harrigan's Phone is coming to Netflix from producers Ryan Murphy and Jason Blum. It follows a young boy who befriends an older billionaire who lives in his small town neighborhood. They bond over the man's first iPhone, but when the man dies, the boy discovers that not everything dead is gone and finds himself able to communicate with his friend from the grave by leaving voicemails on the iPhone that he was buried with. Uh, director John Lee Hancock of The Blind Side and Saving Mr. Banks is directing this one. And interestingly enough, it will be starting shooting uh, next month in my home state of Connecticut. So if you live in Connecticut, if you're listening to this, uh, maybe keep an eye out. Maybe they're shooting in your neck of the woods uh, and you can kind of, you know, maybe uh, see what's going on. Because I haven't heard any casting news just yet for that one. So we shall see, and maybe I'll see in person in my own backyard coming up soon, but I'm excited for that. The other big horror title coming through is Legendary's new sequel in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise is now suddenly shifting gears after it sold the global rights to the film to Netflix in a surprising move that was announced uh, on Monday by The Hollywood Reporter. The new film is set to be a decades later sequel to the original 1974 Toby Hooper classic, which, by the way, happens to be my favorite all-time horror film. And it picks up in a setting where Leatherface hasn't been seen or heard since. Fetty Alvarez and original Texas Chainsaw screenwriter Kim Henkel are part of the producing team for this one, with David Blue Garcia directing. Owen Ferreri of Mandy fame, will take on the role as Sally Hardesty, the final girl from the original previously played by Marilyn Burns, R.I.P., and Mark Burnham will take on the role of Leatherface. This is a strong move for Netflix, who has gone harder for horror uh, projects in the last two years, and a move that signals they will not back down from the other streamers who have classic horror franchise sequels of their own. I know Evil Dead has a new film coming to HBO Max. Hellraiser has one coming to Hulu. And Paranormal Activity and Pet Cemetery both have films going to Paramount Plus, I believe. So it's an exciting idea. Uh, a lot of horror fans, including myself, are skeptical that this might be just a dump to Netflix. Uh, that, you know, it wasn't getting... Uh, good test audience reviews uh, and that maybe, you know, especially with the concerning uh, rise of COVID and the fear of losing money theatrically, that maybe streaming was the safest landing for this. And that all might be true, uh, but I'm going to watch it anyway. (laughs) Uh, But I am hoping uh, the film comes out 
in this already stacked October Halloween block that Netflix has coming up very soon. Films like Nobody Gets Out Alive, There's Someone Inside Your House, Night Teeth, Army of Thieves, and many others uh, that highlight a schedule that is already pretty packed up. But I sure would relish another big scare before the month is out, and I'm sure Netflix could accommodate that, as I believe the film is, you know, all done and ready to go. So stay tuned, and we'll see if we get a trailer or some other news regarding the release date on that very soon. And lastly, there's uh, two stories that came out of CinemaCon that just recently wrapped up. Um, The first story uh, is that Netflix is interested in putting more and more movies in theaters ahead of their streaming release dates in an effort to have a bigger cultural impact. This will dovetail nicely into another story out of CinemaCon we will get to in a sec. Um, But two things are at play here. One, I think this is definitely a reaction to uh, the shrinking theatrical window that has had a major role uh, in this with the other major studios as they've negotiated with the big theater chains in the last year or so to get the amount of days movie theaters get a film before it goes to streaming or PVOD down to basically like half what it used to be. And Netflix could definitely handle something like a 45-day or even a 30-day window if they wanted to throw some of its more prominent film titles on the big screen before it hits the platform, making them closer to somebody like a WB HBO Max situation or a Universal with Peacock situation, or even what happened with Quiet Place 2 with Paramount Plus. So, you know, the landscape is changing and Netflix can kind of jump in the fray to kind of be closer to the package that basically any other studio would offer. And why does that make sense for Netflix? And why should this be exciting? Because if they can commit to a theatrical rollout as part of the package, that makes them essentially just like everybody else, except maybe with deeper pockets. Um, That makes them more enticing to filmmakers and creatives that want to see their films delivered in a more traditional fashion. And maybe people that you know, have been more critical of the streaming process. Um, you know, I know it was rumored recently that Netflix floated the name Christopher Nolan out there as a director they would love to work with one day. I mean, if that's the case, what's the difference between, you know, what WB, who who usually has all the Christopher Nolan films, and Netflix would be? It's just you have more subscribers on the back end. Because if everything is now going to go straight from theatrical to the streaming sites and kind of skip the PVOD stuff and change up that window as well, then who's any different? So I I think Netflix could definitely be more aggressive, do more big budget stuff, try to really float out there that they are not any different than when it comes to the rollout of any other film studio. So this could be an interesting change in how these all go. We'll see how that evolves over time, I would imagine, if they can. Uh, I know Red Notice, which actually just had its trailer uh, drop last week as well, um, You know that's, that's a movie that I believe they don't have the rights to put in theaters at all. So that's why that one's going straight to Netflix uh, in mid-November coming soon. But I know that maybe a big film like The Gray Man coming soon from the Russo brothers, that that movie, uh, which has a huge cast and a big price tag in terms of its budget, 
maybe they put that out in theaters for a while before it comes to Netflix. So that might be an interesting test balloon movie because of the the notable cast that's in there. Oh, my God, with Chris Evans, Ryan Gosling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in a spy movie, uh, that would make for a very tasty treat to see theatrically versus going straight to streaming. And I, I think it could entice someone maybe besides Christopher Nolan, but maybe not director Patty Jenkins, who is the subject of the final piece of news we have today coming out of CinemaCon, because um, she kind of caused a bit of a stir this week with comments she made in a panel discussion where she said, all of the films that streaming services are putting out, I'm sorry, they look like fake movies to me. I don't hear about them. I don't read about them. It's not working as a model for establishing legendary greatness. And of course, you know, as a person who hosts a, a podcast on, you know, str- a streaming platforms, movies specifically, um, of course, I would have maybe a, a quick opinion on this one. Uh, just to, in fairness to Patty Jenkins uh, all around, I would like to see everything in which the context of how this conversation went and where it went after she made those comments, um, because, you know, uh, context is everything. I'd like to see the full video, but, uh, you know, CinemaCon, I don't believe they have anything available. And the articles that I read didn't have anything besides the the juiciest sound bites that everybody could kind of pick apart and retweet and, you know, put their opinions out there. But a couple of things are at hand here. And I'll start with the stuff. The The surprising part is that some of this I kind of agree with, but there's a few things to start with. Number one, I've read all the tweets where everybody's like, yo, Netflix, <laughs> amongst others, uh, put out movies, you know, partly in theatrical and then or or even if they go straight to streaming they end up at the oscars alongside movies that you know maybe you would have put out or maybe in favor of movies that you put out so conversations around movies like i don't know the irishman marriage story mank trial of the chicago seven etc 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 um you know i don't think that those movies or maybe what she's thinking about. But if she is, she's, you know, a little off base, of course. Um, but everybody, you know, was the first to point out like, hey, there's a bunch of Oscar films like Roma or any of these ones that are like, if you don't think that's a real film, you're out of your mind. So Patty Jenkins, you know, is going to catch some flack because those are the immediate reactions to to what she said and it seems like people are taking her to task for it, and quite rightly, if that's where we're going to go with the conversation. But I do believe that there's more to to this conversation because I think a lot of what she's saying, you know, because Netflix especially, they have two different types of movies, right? You can make a million uh, comparisons with films that are, are more prestige films, films that ended up in awards conversations and things like that, but they release a ton of films. So maybe if you're saying that, you know, because streamers like Netflix release a ton of movies that, you know, maybe the model of just throwing out tons and tons and tons of content and not, you know, kind of giving it a more traditional advertising or marketing strategy or making it more prominent 
uh, on their platform or, or giving it more advertising uh, as far as traditional marketing mediums like billboards and, and, and commercials and things of that nature. Like They obviously think they don't need to because they have so many people on this platform already and you know, based on... You know, say say something like Army of the Dead. Um, I don't think it got a ton of marketing outside of certain mediums. But the film still, you know, like 75 million people, 80 million people saw the movie. So, you know, is that enough? Is that okay? Is that enough? should be enough to start a conversation or see conversations about the movie going out? I would think so. Um, but, you know, the, the things about you know, bigger cultural impact, which is something that, you know, Netflix said in their, in their efforts of putting more movies in theaters, I think kind of shows that Patty Jenkins might be partially right that, you know, maybe the traditional rollout, the, the theater rollout, the theatrical rollout, excuse me, is a model that does establish legendary greatness. And there are some, um, I know, I believe I saw on, uh, discussing film, uh, on Twitter, I think they had a graphic one time that I saved that I thought was quite interesting where they said that Netflix films don't last in people's brains or in the public consciousness, discussions online, etc. as much as the standard studio rollouts are compared to all the other major studios. And I think that's because of the complete diluge, like the complete overwhelming amount of content that they have at, at a time i mean look at this like i mean i'm covering kate today but i'm like well i didn't cover worth i didn't cover afterlife of the party which also is uh came out over the weekend like that's three films that i could just be sitting here doing all film reviews this week and instead i'm talking about <laughs> how you know that they might have an issue with uh how they roll out their films and that kind of speaks to that a little bit. Um, so maybe over time, their strategy has to shift to quality over quantity to kind of compare themselves to other studios like Disney or WB, uh, you know, or Amazon or any of these other ones that are going to be their main direct competitors going forward. And because you're seeing it, like anything that comes out on Disney Plus, MCU or Star Wars or any of these things. They don't release a ton of content, but they do it like a week after week release with the MCU shows and all these things that get a ton of attention. And then it also gives people who are podcasters time to catch up and really sink their teeth into something like an MCU show or a movie that comes out. And you really start to see it where everybody, it's a it's a big tentpole event around these films. But if you're going to do... Essentially, sometimes we're going to release stuff that would normally have been in the past a TV movie, and then we're also going to release a big tentpole thing at the same time, and you want ev all the attention to go everywhere yeah, and just, and just kind of put it out there and see what sticks. I don't know if that's going to work as well, or if they have shows like, you know, who knows if the new episodes for Witcher or stranger things or something that seems to work whether they want to start rolling them out only a few episodes at a time or an episode at a time to get those conversations going so i think this signals that there might be a shift in thinking at netflix and maybe 
you know, instead of just pointing out the obvious with Patty Jenkins, where it's like, yo, uh, not every movie that these streamers are 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 something that looks fake, um, which a lot of people also took her to test because it's like, um some of your wonder woman stuff looks pretty fake so i don't know what you're talking about but i think it's also she just thinks that because there's no conversation it's like oh that's a movie is more like coming out of her mouth than the quality uh of the movies or their cgi or anything else that she was taken to task on twitter as well so you know it kind of goes both ways there are definitely things to talk about in regards to that conversation and if you have more input on that too i'd love to hear it you know uh hit us up uh, on twitter or instagram at nomcast pod and you know send us send us a, a a note saying hey uh i think you're off base or i think you know patty jenkins is off base however you want to say it i just think there's a lot of different ways everybody wants take culture to be like slam somebody down or praise someone but there can be some gray and there should be some learning that happens from this you know uh, maybe Patty Jenkins should learn that not every movie that is in the Patty Jenkins sphere is labeled a movie or not. You know, I would say that the if you look at the numbers from this podcast, you know, the people who love these teen romance movies are very active and love these movies, but that's not going to be on Patty Jenkins' radar. So, you know, maybe that's something that, she should realize that maybe she's aged out of some of the conversations of the popular Netflix films or films that are going to streaming, which that is the age level of the people that they're trying to reach, you know, get more and more subs from people in that age range. So there's tons to think about in terms of that type of stuff. It's it's because it's business at the end of the day. Um, but you can also look to see why, people like Disney are closing the gap on Netflix and maybe they need to adapt again to kind of see where they can kind of ride both sides of the fence to be successful long-term, especially domestically. So they, they've done a good job. They're always, they always seem to be one step ahead of people, but maybe there has to be a little bit of give and take in terms of the strategy of rolling out their films, I think they do a great job at TV. I think I do think the binge model for for big big titles maybe needs to, you know, slow down and, and go out more traditionally to create this you know kind of rabid response that you know the MCU shows or some of these other shows get. You know, some of the HBO shows that air traditionally on HBO, or even the ones that go out to just HBO Max. You know, there could be. Uh, a way to kind of maybe do both you know it's it's your platform netflix you could do whatever you want but uh, i am seeing a trend in terms of stuff that lasting legacies as patty jenkins mentioned you know maybe it's something to think about if you want to create conversations and conversations that last i will also say for the billionth time on this podcast netflix has only been making movies for like six years six years wb disney legacy studios that have been doing it forever so while you know hbo max has to learn how to make a maybe a better streaming platform because it constantly you know like is buggy or or has certain issues of like where stuff is and what to find and whatever 
you know, I think they have a while to go before they fine tune the streaming process. Same thing with Disney. You know, I think they're still trying to fine tune what they have going on. But Netflix has been around longer than everybody in terms of streaming. So everybody's trying to learn from Netflix. Um, you know, and Amazon Prime's trying to play catch up and do different things and throw bigger budgets and try to play play more into the game of the streaming wars than ever before. So everybody was chasing Netflix and now Netflix maybe has to kind of, for certain instances, maybe pivot and kind of bridge the gap between what works for certain audiences and then also works for the cinephile or directors that they might look to work with in the future, like a Christopher Nolan or a Patty Jenkins, who clearly seems to say and has said on the record that she will not be working with Netflix in a movie setting, that she would work with them in a in a show setting. But it'll be interesting because her next movie is uh you know Rogue Squadron, I believe, with Disney Plus. So we'll see how that gets treated, because uh, now we've seen kind of the the different sides of how the release strategy of Disney properties are going at the moment. So uh, everything is a muddled mess between either COVID or just the change in streaming and, and everything else. So I'm sure we'll all come out of this, you know, better for the consumer, I hope, uh, coming out the other side. And, you know, I am 100% have been saying forever, even though I am doing a Netflix podcast, Netflix original movie podcast, I love going to see these Netflix movies in the theatrical setting. So do it more. I am all for it. I plan on trying to see The Starling coming up in the next uh, couple of weeks uh, out in theaters. The Guilty or you know The Harder They Fall. If I can find these in the wild in, in the theaters, I am going and I am happy to do so. Um, so please, if you're, if you're doing tentpole movies or award uh, films that demand theatrical releases or bigger ticket uh october like halloween releases horror releases please please do it i would love to get those uh ingested in the way that i was raised on and that i enjoy so but i won't complain if we have both because i love doing this podcast i love trying to to cover all sides of it so like i said if you want to join the conversation hit me up on nomcast pod on twitter and instagram and yeah, let's uh, let's hope for the best that it's it's great for the consumer that everybody's kind of trying to to better themselves each and every day from all of these studios. So look forward to that. But right now we're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to come back and give you my review of Kate, uh, the latest action film from Netflix starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Woody Harrelson and a host of others. Uh, so stay tuned for that right after this break. Attention, culture consumers. Join me, the queen of queries, Sarah O'Connor, and my band of nerdy knights. Colleen McMillan. Flo Siegel. And Anders Drew. On Bohemian Geek Studies, where we take extremely dorky dives into our favorite fandoms, especially that Star Wars galaxy far, far away. Listen each week as we examine the stories that mean so much to us. Bohemian Geek Studies is available wherever you get your podcasts and is proudly part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hey there, I'm Mr. Black. And I'm Mr. Green. 
And we're a couple of guys who met in a comic book store. Together, we host the Pint O' Comics podcast, where we invite listeners to join us to talk about movies, TV, comics, music, or just whatever. Starting very soon, we'll be joining up with the fine folks at Forgotten Entertainment for a special limited series called On the QT, where we talk Tarantino. Every week for 10 weeks, a guest will join us to chat about every Quentin Tarantino movie from Reservoir Dogs to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So join us starting in May 2021. On the QT is available Available wherever you download your podcasts and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Ooh, that's a bingo. Jesus, Kate, what happened to you? I missed. I think I was poisoned before the hit. V, who was the target? The grand honcho of the Yakuza. How much time do I have? 14 hours, maybe 15. Kate, it's gonna be okay. You won't get any more questions from me after today. Who are you? I'm Kate. All right, so let's talk about Kate. Like I said previously, this is the action crime thriller starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead as the titular character Kate that comes out this Friday on Netflix. Of course, as always, thanks to Netflix for getting us the film early to get these timely reviews out to you all. Thanks again to them. Alongside Winstead, we have some notable names as well. Woody Harrelson as Kate's mentor V. Tadanobu Asano, who people may know as Hogan in the Thor films or Raiden in the latest Mortal Kombat film. Mikhail Huseman from Game of Thrones and Red Sea Diving Resort. And Yoon Kunimura, who many would know as Tanaka from the Kill Bill films or his roles in movies like Audition or Ichi the Killer. This is director Cedric Nicholas Troynan's second feature film, after helming the sequel to Snow White and the Huntsman back in 2016. He was mainly a visual effects artist prior to that, and this is also the second script for writer Umer Alim, so not a ton of experience to go around on this one. The early reviews have been middling thus far. Amy Nicholson of Variety, who I like quite a bit, uh, seems to have one of the more positive takes on the film, giving praise to Winstead's performance as well, but overall... I've seen the film hover around about a 3 out of 5 on Letterboxd with a less forgiving score average on Metacritic. But do I think these scores are fair to the film? Pretty much, yeah. It's solid where you would think it would be solid. The known actors I listed previously are all good with higher points for someone like Yoon Kunimura, who really moves the film into the third act quite nicely with a very punctuated sword battle. Uh, at the end of the film that definitely boosted his rating with me. And higher points, of course, go to Winstead as well, who uses this film as a nice follow-up to her strong action performance in Birds of Prey. As the name of her character implies, of course, she is at the center of the frame throughout the film, for better or for worse, as she is thrusted into this revenge plot with moving targets after she is irreversibly poisoned. The action set pieces are also quite good at times, it doesn't jump into the pantheon of Netflix action films in that regard, as it's not The Night Comes For Us, it's not Gunpowder Milkshake or Extraction Level uh, for the most part, but it does have some enticing imagery and some really stylish backdrops that do rival those films in some way. 
Uh, there's a rooftop scene in particular uh, after she's poisoned that definitely fits that description very well. Uh, uh, also, the scene in The Black Lizard uh, fits that description very well. So definitely a lot of style. You know, it's going to get some comparisons to Gunpowder Milkshake in multiple ways. Obviously, the style thing that I mentioned, a lot of neon. It's also a female-led assassin story with a child element that is part of the revenge chase. But I don't think this movie is as good as that film is. There's definitely more chemistry in the characters in Gunpowder Milkshake, especially with the mother-daughter connection being especially strong in that film. And none of the relationships here really reach that level, especially Harrelson's V character and Kate or Kate and the young Ani character. I mean, those are the ones that you would think would have more bonding moments or more gelling, and it doesn't reach uh, the levels that I thought I got out of Gunpowder Milkshake. Um, and, and to be honest, just it's part of the reason why ultimately uh, the film is having mixed reviews. I think that the lack of chemistry mixed with character development and world-building issues is what stops this film from getting on the level of some of those more successful action films that Netflix has put out in the last couple of years. Is it watchable? Absolutely. Is it better than the action crime films between Gunpowder Milkshake and now? For sure. Give me this over Sweet Girl, Beckett, The Last Mercenary, or The Ice Road. But did it live up to my probably too high expectations to save me from this summer of weaker action films? No, uh, not entirely, no. I would probably give it that three out of five that Letterbox had. Uh, not enough meat on the bone to really move the needle too much higher than that. Uh, but maybe if you've seen Shang-Chi and you want some more action in your life, this one, you know, should scratch that itch. So check it out. Let me know what you think on the socials at NomCastPod. Uh, I definitely took some lumps on my praise for Gunpowder Milkshake, so maybe I'm off base in your mind and you want to let me have it on this one too. That's okay. Uh, I could take it. Uh, so reach out, join the conversation, and you know, be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Maybe give us some reviews or a little light on those, so be sure to do that as well. Uh, you know, Just come back. Come back to us next week. We have a lot of previews coming for you. You know, Halloween and Christmas coming up, plus all the awards films that are around the corner. So keep coming back for all your Netflix movie goodness. Until then, that's it for me, guys. Be safe out there. Thanks again to OK and the Night Crew for our new theme song, which I'm loving more and more each week. Uh, Check them out on Bandcamp, YouTube, or Facebook. And like I said, guys, see you next time. Be safe. Talk to you soon.